We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there. We at Blue Wire wanted to thank you for your continued support of this podcast. With over 90 podcasts across our network, we are committed to bringing you great content to fill that sport-shaped hole in your heart. To find more Blue Wire pods, search for us on iTunes or check out bluewirepods.com. And remember, one day sports will return and it will be glorious. Thanks for listening. On to the show. Blue Wire. What is up, Nets fans? Welcome to the Brooklyn Buzz. I'm your host, Nick Faye. With me, as always, Jack Manuel. Jack, how we doing? I'm doing well, Nick. Spencer Dinwiddie, review time. Yes, diving into another season review, this time Spencer Dinwiddie. But as always, before we get started, you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, OTGBasketball.com, NetsRepublic.com, and Blue Wire Pods. And this episode is brought to you by BetOnline.ag and Blue Chews. But, Jack, let's talk about last year and a quick summary of what Spencer's season was like. This was a career year for Spencer Dinwiddie, Nick. 20.6 points, 3.5 rebounds, 6.8 assists. Obviously, if the season were to commence, those numbers could change. But it was it was a tremendous season. Near all-star season for Spencer Dinwiddie. Because in the absence of Kyrie Irving and Carol Savert, when both of those guys went down at about, I think it was 4-7, and seven, you know, Dinwiddie led the way and was able to to steady the ship in ways. You know, the, the Nets certainly didn't fly out the gates when they um, Spencer Dinwiddie was, was leading the team. But, you know, his efforts and, and his production led to him being in the conversation for an all-star. And I know that we were big advocates for it. We were, I think we talked about it pretty much every episode in the early points of the season up until uh, the all-star break. And we were certainly big advocates for it. But you know, it was a tremendous season for him. And to go from you know, someone that we sort of was like, oh, he's going to be a six-man of the year contender to being, you know, a, a legitimate sort of all-star contender. You know, that sort of, when we get to rankings and, and that sort of stuff in terms of, counterparts in his range uh, tremendous season from Spencer and I think he found a balance in terms of his scoring passing uh, by you know the midpoint of the season where everything sort of all came together yeah he pretty much doubled down on proving he's a six-man type or he's a NBA level starting point guard and he really did that you know the start of the season that first week was really slow and everyone's trying to trade him started to pick it up then the injuries happened and he pretty much had to put the team on his back we kind of talked about it off air you know the second best player in the team was probably Joe Harris third Jared Allen and a really really rough bench unit to the point where when Spencer was on the floor, you were kind of concerned about how the Nets would produce points. That's at that high of a level he was playing at. And then even when Kara started to pop off when he came back, I feel like Spencer did a good job maintaining his level of play. I mean, the only really down mark on his season is his efficiency. But I think some of that is due to the fact that he was asked to carry such a big load without a great supporting cast. 
Yeah, and I think in our preview, that's one thing that we probably touched on with probably probably every player except for Kyrie Irving was their was their efficiency. Maybe Joe Harris because of the shots that he does tend to take are quite efficient too. And it was unfortunate. And we'll obviously get the strengths, weaknesses, and success or disappointment. But yeah, in terms of there was a, a lot of moments, Nick, that stuck out for me throughout the season. And you know, the one that obviously is the most prevalent in my mind, but because we did. The, the Lakers game the other day were, was the game. Obviously, there were some frustrating moments, but it's not a Spencer Dinwiddie experience if you don't get frustrated by his arguments with the referees and not getting calls. So that Lakers game was a really great one going up against top competition, you know, his hometown. Uh, the Portland Trailblazers game where him and, and Kyrie Irving really both went off, you know, combined for 67 points uh, in, in a ro- in, on the road against a, an, a really good team, a really quality team. Uh, there was the Atlanta game, you know, where he put up 41 points. I think that's uh, uh, his career high, um, and you're know, sort of jeweled with with Trey Young on on the offensive end. The Miami game as well uh, against a, another hardened competition, you know, without our, some of our best players, uh, an incredible performance from him. And then the San Antonio Spurs game as well, which was uh, another big performance from Spence. Those ones, uh, those five, yeah, four, four or five, uh, stick out for me. Yeah, I mean, Nets-Lakers really pop because, like you mentioned, the competition, the hometown, having the dunk on Anthony Davis, some of those big finishes inside, taking him one-on-one a couple times, and obviously hitting the game-winning shot. I like the first one against Boston. It came, I think, the day after Thanksgiving. They had just lost in yeah. Boston. He kind of came right out of the gates, popped off, led him to a nice win against a good team. Uh, the Tobias Harris dunk, that was one of my favorite moments of the season, put him on a poster. And then you mentioned the Miami win and just a comeback fashion of him having some really big moments in that game. But throughout the year, I think Spencer just had a, a lot, a lot of big moments for this team because, like we mentioned, during that period in you know late November or early November to December, you know Spence really had to do a lot of the work. So what would you call a season, a success or a disappointment? Oh, massive success, Nick. I think we've spoken about on, I think, an awards pod with Alec that you know he was the the Nets MVP without Spencer Dinwiddie. The, the Nets would have struggled even more so, and it wasn't the best season from the Brooklyn Nets. But without Spencer, the Nets would have been even more in the doldrums. They would not be a playoff team by any stretch of the imagination. And I think that all of this, a lot of the success that the Nets had. Uh, without Kyrie and without Karras was because of Spencer Dinwiddie. He was our best player. He was, you know, a top 50 player, a top 40 player during those periods for the Nets. And when you are playing against the likes of Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum and coming up against, you know, the Boston Celtics, you know, you need a guy to really step up and and lead the offense. You need a guy to to, to play through. And Spencer eventually found that balance because there was times throughout the season where, his inconsistency in the pick and roll uh, with some of the bigs, including DJ, you know, he, he didn't really find that alley-oop sort of connection. But by the end of it, uh, they, their synergy was great. He obviously has, whenever Spencer Dimley was playing great throughout that period, it seemed that Jared Allen was playing his best basketball as well. So he was really you know, impacting and lifting his teammates in a way that I thought was really positive. So big tick for, for Spencer Dimley, absolute A-star. Yeah, I'd say success as well. I think, like I kind of mentioned, he doubled down on his value and even took his game to another level and proved that he can be a guy that can carry maybe a fringe playoff team to the playoffs or at least keep them in that realm without a great supporting cast. And like you mentioned, you know, we had some nice moments of getting Joe Harris involved, you know, hitting Jared Allen and DeAndre and those oops and just doing a lot of things. We're dealing with a lot of pressure and probably more attention from the defense than he's seen in previous years. So I think just from that extent, you have to give him props and, you feel comfortable about comfortable with Dinwiddie on your team too because he can fit so many different roles. You can plug him in as a starter. You can plug him in as a complementary starter, or he can run your second offense for you. Come off the bench and be a guy that can come off the bench, score points, run the O, and then also still close the game. So I think from that aspect, really, really good year from Spencer Dinwiddie. Yeah, I think that that point that you just made there, Nick, is what makes him so valuable. And I think some people would even say that he is more valuable than Carol Levert because you know the argument that I think Matt made on a few episodes ago, I you know there's there's certainly some validity to it because Carol Levert I think has a narrower window and a narrower sort of um, complementary pieces around him for him to succeed. Whereas Spencer can do certain different things uh, in terms of his role. He can lead the team as the number one sort of option on offense. He can play the facilitator role. He can find his own shot and create his own shot and and get to the lane. He can come off the bench and play the six-man role. And in terms of value, uh, I think obviously we both think that Karis Levert is a more talented player in terms of individual raw talent. But Spencer Dinwiddie just has a, a little more malleability, which I think is incredibly important. 
Yeah, I think you could argue Spencer definitely has more of a plug-and-play to him, where Karras needs to be more in a certain situation for him to have success. And I think where Dinwiddie, it's like, all right, I've already seen him play at so many different roles and have success, where I think we're still waiting for Karras to prove that he can do it in different roles and not maybe just that lead or secondary role. So I think that's a really fair argument. Yeah, definitely. But moving on, talking specifically about his game and why he is such a great plug-and-play player, give me some of his strengths, Jack. Uh, free throw rate, eighth in total free throws in the NBA, tenth in free throws attempted. Uh, his assist percentage, so the assist percentage is the percentage of shots that his teammates made uh, off off his passes. So that was near 35%, which is in the 95th percentile. Uh, I was lucky enough to get you know a little bit of stats from cleaning the glass. So you know that sort of balance that I was sort of mentioning to earlier was reflected in the stats. Uh, when he is on the floor. The Nets are plus 9.3 per 100 possessions better, and that is in the 97th percentile. So, you know, a la Anthony Davis, you know, sort of uh, Giannis, maybe not those guys, but in that similar sort of range, you know, absolutely outstanding in terms of his importance to the team. Uh, he's pick and roll scoring, as you probably expect. You know, one of the best in the NBA at that. Uh, let me just find it. He's, own, he's above Bradley Beal and D'Angelo Russell in around that sort of top 10 range with Lou Williams, Derek Rose, Kemba Walker. Uh, you know, at 9.3 points per game. So for me, I think that the, the being able to do some research and see the stats reflected what I thought subjectively was just like, okay, that sort of validates it a little bit. And, you know, all those sort of things, you know, you can touch on, you know, there's times where he had some, some decent enough defense, uh, but I think that that was inconsistent at times. So I didn't really necessarily label it as a strength. The strengths that I sort of alluded to were ones that were just flat out, cannot question Spencer Dinwiddie. They are you know, the, the, the A-plus level skills that he has in his game. Yeah, well, I mean, you pretty much nailed it with those strengths. And, like, just adding on to that, obviously, they kind of are correlated. He's an elite driver. I think he's a guy that can just get to the rim with ease, with the speed. He gets that one step, gets the dribble down, he's good to go. Kind of talking about the assist percentage. You know, he's capable of running the offense. I think he's a guy that doesn't, you know, need to just score. Like you kind of mentioned, he has been able to find a balance of getting his teammates involved and also finding the scoring load for himself. And like you mentioned, I don't think he's a, a consistent defender, but I'd say he's a capable defender. When you need him to defend, I think he's shown that he can do it. It's just about doing it at more of a consistent level. Yeah, and, and I think that that's going to be – that's a key for so many of our guys. You know, I, I yep. thought – who do you think was a better defender this year, Nick? Spencer Dimity or Karis LeVert? Uh, I mean, I guess we saw, I, this is kind of like a cop-out answer. I'd say Spencer probably had more of a consistent defense where we saw higher and lower uh, peaks from Karis, where you know we saw Karis defend at really high level at certain points, forcing turnovers. But we also saw him not locked in defensively, where I think Spencer, like even when he's playing bad defense, I think it's still okay and passable, where I think like, his elite defense isn't super high, and he's not going to be a guy that's going to create a ton of turnovers for you. So I think as a baseline, uh, Spencer was probably the better guy, but if you're looking for more of like disruption, Karras was probably better. Yeah, I'm not going to go with the cop-out answer. Uh, I'm going to you know, put it out there. You know, take out, not sit on the fence. I'm going to get down <laughs> from the fence. I'm normally a guy that's sits on the fence quite a bit. Uh, I'm going to go with Spencer. I just think that what you mentioned, being able to play consistent enough defense for a longer period of time is much is much more valuable and I guess it's sort of what we're talking about uh, in general about the sort of Spencer-Karras comparison. Uh, I think it's more valuable to be able to play consistent defense uh, for a, a 50, 60 game period straight rather than have, you know, a game where you are one of the, the 10, 15 best defenders in the league at your position and then go down to being, you know, an absolute, you know, eyesore on that end of the floor and provide so many mistakes that it impacts your team in a negative way, which I think Karras did on some occasion. I'm not saying he did it so consistently, like, we mentioned on the Karis LeVert you know, review pod that that defense was something that is going to be a key to him being a, a long-term Brooklyn net and you know elevating his game to that real next level. You know, He had games where he had like six bloody steals, four steals uh, in, in over a, a certain period of time. But you know, Spencer didn't necessarily have those flashy numbers, but I thought you know, his, his effort, I think his communication is a lot better because I just think it's part of his personality. He's just a bit more of a confident uh, and brash guy. So I would go with Spencer Dinwiddie. Um, but, you know, I, I get it. It's probably not that easy to sort of go, yeah, it's easily Spencer Dinwiddie. But I just think that to be able to do it at a consistent level and a, a, a above par level is better than having a sort of, you know, a line graph that is sort of jumping up and down like a roller coaster. Yeah, 100%. I think obviously some of Karis is, I would say, the injury and not being able to because like, 
I think everybody on the Nets for the first two weeks of the season was pretty bad defensively. It's not until like November when Spencer really led the show and they realized they had to play defense, it picked up. So, I mean, it'll be an interesting thing to keep an eye on next year if they're both on the team, you know, who's able to take their defensive skill set to the next level. But anything else, Jack, you want to throw in for strengths for Spencer Dinwiddie? I think leadership, Nick, and communication, basketball IQ, the intangibles that I don't think, you know, you can necessarily measure at all. There are metrics for those. You know, if we were to get uh, some of our guys, Seth Part now and Dave DeFore on, you can't necessarily uh, put a number to those. But, yeah, I I think those – those things, those intangibles, I think is something that Spencer has in spades. You know, uh, I think that he's an incredibly aware person. Sometimes he gets that, that white line fever where he's just like, he, he loses his cool a little bit. And then, you know, he has to get like DJ or Kyrie to sort of slap him out of it somewhat. But I think a lot of the time he is able to be able to understand and read the moment, uh, be able to impact his teammates, be able to communicate to them uh, and, and be able to just be a, a really, really great locker room presence and on-court presence uh, for the other four guys and other guys on the bench. Yeah, I think his player awareness is very good because like he understands that Kevin Durant is, you know, the best player on this team and he's going to change his role next year or, you know, Kyrie's going to come in and kind of lead the show. Like he understands who Spencer Dinwiddie is in the landscape of the NBA. And I think that's really difficult for a lot of players, especially when they're at that all-star or fringe all-star level. Yeah, and I think that that's exactly what you need. Just I think there are plenty of guys in in the NBA that probably have an elevated sense of self. And I think you need to have that level of confidence. Uh, I think Spencer certainly has immense confidence in his own abilities. But I also think that he is aware of the fact that, you know, I'm Spencer Dinwiddie. I'm not Kevin Durant. I certainly know that my impact is dependent on how I can make the the game easier for him. And to be fair, a lot of the guys in our team are like that. You know, we heard in earlier points of the season, Jared Allen sort of saying, you know, I just want to let Kyrie Irving do his thing. I just want to set some good screens for him. Karis LeVert's just like, look, there's just times where you just have to get out of his way and let Kyrie Irving do his thing. So I think a lot of... That's why I think that despite the inconsistencies and people sort of hating on the locker room and chemistry, that sort of thing, I think the teammates that are there right now, I think are a much better fit for guys who have, quote-unquote, not the best personalities and moody and and inconsistent personalities, even though I don't necessarily totally agree with it, uh, in comparison to to what Kyrie and KD have experienced uh, in other locker rooms and franchises. A lot of credit to Sean Marks. You know, making sure the right, you know, personalities are in that locker room and everyone can kind of gel together. But with currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, still has hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on. From the online casino to poker and blackjack, they're bringing Vegas to you. Missing the NFL? No problem. Bet Online has live daily Madden NFL 20 simulations you can bet on. You can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. All open 24 hours a day and all online. Use promo code BLUEWIRE to join today and receive your new welcome bonus. Bet online, your online wagering solution. Guys, looking to last longer and go a few extra rounds? Get to BlueChew.com. Blue Chew has the first ever chewable that brings your performance in the bedroom to another level. They got the same active ingredients that Viagra and Cialis, so you know they work. And since they're chewable, they work faster. You can take them any time of day, day or night, even on a full stomach. Plus, you don't need to go to the doctor's office or spend time waiting in the pharmacy line. Blue Chew's online physician is free of cost, and once approved, your order ships straight to your door in discreet packaging. Here's a great deal for you guys. Visit BlueChew.com. Get your first order free when you use promo code BLUEWIRE. Just pay $5 for shipping. Again, that's BlueChew.com, promo code BLUEWIRE. Getting to some of the weaknesses, we kind of hinted at it. At times, emotion can be a weakness for Spencer, too. Oh, it is... (laughs) Anyone that wants to rewatch uh, just the probably the last three minutes of, of the Brooklyn Buzz rewatch, it's now in podcast form as well. Um, check, scroll down on Nick's uh, Twitter page as well. You get the Periscope version. And just the last moments of the game where he's just giving away offensive foul after offensive foul. And he's just like, you know, he's, he, he's, he's that close to getting a tech. He's so close to getting a tech. Um, but I think credit where credit's due, he keeps his composure well enough there's times where it's just like uh spence you know you're on defense now uh make sure you switched on mate um so i think that's 
I think that's one thing with the the really the good players where you know can emotion fuel you or can it end up being a negative and a hindrance because it it overtakes your your rationality and your ability to sort of put it aside. You know, there are plenty of guys out there that are like that. You know, I think a, a Dennis Rodman, a Draymond Green, you know, plenty of players that play on emotion, play on that field. Patrick Beverly uh, and Spencer does to an extent, probably not to the level that those guys do. But I think, you know, the emotion does impact him. And, you know, uh, maybe some of the slights, not getting the calls that a LeBron James or Giannis or James Harden would get. And, you know, sometimes it, that fuels the fire a little bit. But in terms of on-court stuff, Nick, um, I'm not saying this is a total weakness. So that's why I'm starting with it. Uh, the free throw percentage, it, it was inconsistent. You know, despite finishing this, the season at, well, not finishing the season, but finishing this portion of the season at around 78%. It is his lowest uh, of his career. You know, last year he was at 81, season before 81, season before at 80. Um, and those are all the seasons with the Brooklyn Nets. I don't count anything in Detroit and Chicago, those sort of things. So for me, despite only being 2% less, it was more the fact that there would be games where it would be like 4 of 11 and then it would be, you know, 9 of 9. Um, and, and I think that he could feel it himself. You could sort of go by a game-by-game basis and we'd be watching it's just like, yeah, Spencer's off today. He's going to miss like half his free throws. Oh, yeah, he's on today. He's definitely going to keep attacking. And I think that somehow sometimes impacted his game. You know, yes, his free throw attempts were at seven a game. So that is, again, a career number. But his ability to sort of hit them at the right times, you, know, you didn't necessarily feel immensely confident in it. Um, and I think the other things we touched on in terms of his effectiveness, his effective field goal percentage was bad. Like, it is 47.6%. You know, uh, an average is around that sort of 53 range. And I think a lot of that, and despite the fact that he is a, a, a decent enough free throw shooter, was because his field goal percentage wasn't the, the best either. 41%, 41.5% from the field. And his field goal percentage from three at 31%, it's not good. Um, and that effectiveness impacts how you're seen as a player. And obviously, <clears throat> we talked about you know the, the the portion of the season where he was having to really lead the way, take those extra shots. And you know he's not Kyrie Irving, he's not Kawhi Leonard. You know he doesn't have that effectiveness and that skill level to just be able to bank a shot and hit a shot no matter you know nine times out of ten. You know he's going to have a, a difficulty doing it if he's defended well enough. So uh, the effectiveness overall from the field is something that. Concerns me just a little bit, but I understand why it is the way it is because of uh, the, the brunt of the load that he was forced to sort of play for large portions of the 2019-20 season. Yeah, I agree, Jack. I think the free throw percentage, you you pretty much laid it out perfectly. It's not like a concern about his percentage. It's more about the moments where he'd have those bad games. And he also missed a decent chunk of free throws this season. I think one situation points out in Memphis, I believe he missed either one or two free throws, and that allowed Memphis to win the game on that Crowder game winner, or it would have even not even gotten to that point if he hits his free throws. And I believe there was another game where he missed free throws and ended up costing the Nets or somebody else had to hit a game winner at the other end. So I think if he can kind of get that settled down where I think we both agree it's more to, more of a mental aspect. And then just being an inconsistent shooter, I think like we, you kind of hinted at, some of it is just you know the, the product of the court, the roster he was playing with, him asked to do so much. I remember Nets fans complaining, why is Spencer taking 30 shots tonight? Well, the, the fact is nobody else is stepping up and trying to create offense or doing yeah. anything else. So it's like some of that's on him, but we've also seen him – have some questionable shot selection where he's pulling up from three, you know, in transition when he just has not been hitting his threes all year. So that kind of hurts a little bit too. I know we've kind of talked about it. You've pointed out that like he's better as a catch and shoot guy than as a pull up three point shooter, especially when he's trying to do those fadeaways and step backs. So just getting those out of his shot selection, especially for next season, if he's with the nets will be a big deal because there's so much better offense that can be out there this year. You can kind of, you know, push it under the rug because of some of the teammates he had, but next year there's really no excuse for taking bad shots. And I think in that sense, Nick, he, if he's doing it against the competition, that's we want him to be doing it against the second units. Yeah. No, I don't mind him taking those shots because he's not being defended by Patrick Beverly or Marcus Smart. He's being defended by you know the, the second stringers uh, on each sort of units, and it makes those shots easier to hit. And someone has to take those shots in the second unit. Obviously, we don't know what this team is going to look like, but we're just forecasting, you know, hypothesizing in a in a sense. Whereas he's taking those shots against starting units and against the the quality defenders at the position. Whereas if he's and, and if he's in the units <clears throat> to close games, you know, with Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, you can imagine that he's going to be like John Paxson out there and you know those <laughs> and Steve Kerr out there. You know, he's the guy that 
can still hit a shot and probably a, a much better version of those guys. It's probably a bit of a slight to call Spencer that, but it's more the fact that, you know, like I said on, on other shows uh, when it came to just trading for guys, you know, and I think it was like uh, comparing to Rudy Gobert, if you're taking shots away from Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving at the important times of the game, you're doing bad offense. And, you know, those guys can hit a shot with their eyes closed, with a blindfold, um, a la MJ free throw style. So uh, I, I think Spencer next year, it's weird because he's had, I think, more than any other player in his tenure as a Brooklyn Net, has had his role change and fluctuate so much. And there's times where it's just been like, oh, come on, Spence, just adjust, just adjust. You know, you're good enough to do this. And like, we know you're good against the second unit. Oh, we know you can lead this team. But I think that to be able to have your role thrown around and, and, and be so different on so many occasions is a change to consistency that I think... We expect consistency out of, out of the Brooklyn Nets and out of Spencer Dimwitty, but to not have the consistency in his own role uh, must mess with the the sort of you know the mentality of of, of every night basketball. It's like okay, tonight I'm going to lead this team. Tonight I'm going to take this many shots. Tonight I'm going to get my guys open. Whereas in another night it's just like all right, I need to make sure I contribute and I make sure that you know, Kyrie Irving gets his shots, make the game easy for him. So I think that that inconsistent in 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 mentality and mental approach to the game probably impacted, you know, the, the statistics and metrics that we've sort of spoken about. Yeah. I even remember Spencer saying, it's like, I can't remember if it was this season or the previous season saying like, you know, Kenny now wants me to pass the ball or, you know, season one, they wanted me to score this year. They want me to be a defender. So he's like kind of used to it, but it's still hard mentally to adjust and prepare. Like, especially this season, I think going into the year, did not think he anticipated having to carry the load for a couple months and average 20 points a game and have some 30 performances and just have the entire offense on his back. If anything, he probably thought coming to the season, all right, this is going to be my most complimentary year where I'm playing with Kyrie and I'm playing with Karras and we have other good veterans on this team. I'm not going to have to do as much. And instead, he's probably had to do more than ever this year. Yeah, and I think that he's still done it to a level where we think he's been the best, most consistent Brooklyn Nets player. So... The, the weaknesses and, and criticisms we do have of him are things that aren't necessarily unfixable. I, I think that they are fixable enough. You know, his three-point shot, you know, the mechanics are good. You know, he's a good, three, he's a good free throw shooter. You have good mechanics, you're a good free throw shooter. You're generally a pretty good, you know, three-point shooter. Look at Stephen Curry, one of the best free throw shooters in the history of the game. Look at, and obviously his mechanics are sound as anyone. Look at Kevin Durant. The, the mechanics of free throw shooting. It's generally, it correlates, you know, there and then. So for me, I, I don't think that these, I think probably more than any other player that we might go through when it comes to their weaknesses, Spencer's are probably more fixable than anyone. Yeah, and I'd say like a lot of it is just the fact that of who he was playing with. I think it's just so easy to forget where there was just time he was out there and no one was doing anything. You know, teams were running Joe Harris off the three-point line. People were collapsing on Jared Allen's rules. Torian Prince couldn't hit anything. You can only ask so much of Garrett Temple because he'd either be hot from three or cold from three. And then all of a sudden, it's eight seconds on the shot clock and we're asking Spencer to make a play. So I think you could argue that maybe if he's still on the team that he'll benefit more than anyone playing next to a Kyrie and Kevin Durant because his workload just got so much easier. And if he's getting just catch-and-shoot threes and they get to a point where they're trying to push him off the line, letting him drive an open lane is just ideal for him with the speed he has and he's comfortable going to the free throw line. So, I mean, Spencer next year could have an even bigger year in terms of efficiency. I think the numbers will be down overall, but the efficiency could literally skyrocket in one season. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see. What do you think, what would be a, a, a fair expectation for a three-point percentage for him next year? Um, good question. I'm going to go with the league average is around 36. Uh, I think he's better than that. So I I would expect him to be about 38. I'd be happy with, to be fair, you know, 35 to 38. You know, it's not like he's ever been, you know, a three-point marksman, um, but at, like at the same time, you know, look going through, you know, his game logs year to year, the highest percentage he had was his first year in Brooklyn, uh, 37.6%. So uh, if he could get back to that, I'd be damn happy because the other two seasons, uh, again, 32.6% 33.5%. So if he could get back to that first sort of season with the Nets, you know, where he was, you know, I guess a spare player uh, and, and a bit player in sorts, uh, I'd be more than happy with that. And I think that in that sort of season, you know, where he was playing, you know, 18 games or so, he was playing as a guy to sort of prove himself. And, you know, he was 
you know, a role player in a lot of ways, whereas now he's, you know, that sort of league guy. So for me, I'd be immensely happy with 38, but I'd probably be satisfied with 35, 36, or 37. Yeah, I think I'd probably be th- satisfied with 35 or 36. I think that first year he did shoot 37, but the attempts were pretty down. And like you mentioned, he was really picking his spots where I think, you know, even though we mentioned he'll be playing with better players, they're still going to want him to shoot a high volume of threes. So I think 35 would be fine. But like you said, if he can get up to 38, that would be ideal. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility either because like you mentioned, free throw percentage is there. Mechanics are there. Get rid of some of those pull-up threes. Turn them into a majority of catch-and-shoot threes. I think we could see a nice boost. Definitely. Now, Jack, moving on from there, what would be an ideal lineup for Spencer Dinwiddie? So for me, Nick, uh, I had three things. Uh, floor spaces, so he can yep. drive the lane and really attack You know, his probably premier skill. Low ball usage, guys. Um, we've sort of seen that usage, not necessarily skyrocket, but certainly increase to a level where Spencer is great when he has the ball in his hands. Uh, and uh, a role guy of some sort, you know, a Jared Allen, DeAndre Jordan, most general centers, just a, a somewhat generic center or above generic center so he can throw some lobs to, get some good screens off so he can create some space for him. Uh, so it's not necessarily like he needs a, a heap to make him better. Um, we spoke about the fact that, you know, he was inefficient in a lot of his ways, but like sort of, you know, Nick has said, um, it's because the the caliber of teammates he was sharing the floor with was like, Janan Musa and Theo Pinson at times and, you know, TLC. Guys that are, you know, either not NBA players or fringe NBA players. So if he has talent next to him, I'm excited because a lot of the time we've actually seen Spencer Dimity play basketball. It's just like, well, when he's at his best, it's like, wow, okay. Um, he's not playing it with anyone that we would probably see as a, a future Brooklyn net when it really does matter and we're, and we're ch- challenging for the chip. So if he's doing this with, You'd like to think if he's doing it with a lesser caliber of competition, he would only increase his game with better competition and, and better better talent around him. So, yeah, floor spaces, uh, low ball usage, depending on uh, if he's in with that second unit, uh, and a capable role screener for him. Yeah, I got pretty much the same thing. You want the floor spacers. You want a rim runner that can run, pick, and roll with him. I think you probably want to give him at least a secondary playmaker because I think at times he, like, he enjoys having the full burden on him, but at other times it's just easy for you to be able to even kick it to somebody who can just create for themselves. It doesn't even have to be somebody who can play make for others. Just somebody can go get you a bucket where it's not all on Spencer. You know what? I, it, you saying that makes me wonder, and obviously the stats probably aren't worth looking at, but just the eye test. Spencer and Chris Chioza out there at the same time would be you know, a decent enough second unit if you, you, you're playing... you know. Chioza is a decent enough three-point shooter. Obviously, we'll probably be diving a lot deeper in him to him uh, with his player review series. But I'm I'm fascinated at that because I think Chioza is a guy, despite maybe lacking the height uh, to sort of play capable enough defense. But you know, Spencer I think can switch to that sort of two guard in terms of positioning and on the defensive end. That you know, it's it's a it's a fascinating proposition enough to me at least. Yeah, I could. I don't even know we saw them playing any minutes together this entire. I know. Season. I'm gonna try I, and look I, it up. I would guess no. Like, if I just had to make a guess right off the bat, I would say I don't know if they've logged one minute unless it was, like, garbage time or something. But I could see that being beneficial. Even, like, the last, um, you know, March is only a five-game sample size when Karras really started to pick it up. You see Spencer's true shooting percentage kind of pick up a little bit, too. His three-point percentage was still down. But I think at this point of the year, he was already kind of in a slump, if that makes sense, because of just shooting so many forced attempts and seeing them all not go in. So it would be interesting to see you know, how Spencer would play, even if it was just with Karras for an extended period of time or whatnot. We saw them have a lot of success last year in the postseason because the guards getting the minutes weren't D'Angelo and Karras. It was a lot of Spencer and Karras because they were out playing D'Angelo. Yeah, and, and I think the the game that I, one of the games that I sort of ticked off as one of his best ones was the one where him and Kyrie, both, yeah. yeah, Portland one, where, where they both went off and Spencer actually outscored Kyrie, 34 and 33. So I think that he's proven, I think probably more than Karras, Ah, uh, maybe that's a, a bit hyperbolic to say. I think it's maybe just a, a recency bias. But I think Spencer can has proven that he can play with other guards maybe a little bit better than Karras can because Karras needs the ball in his hand more than Spencer does. I guess that's probably a little bit rich to say, seeing as you know Spencer did what he generally does his best work when he has the ball in his hands as well, You know, even if we're going back to, to the D-Lo days. So I don't know, Nick, what do you think? Who do you think works better next to another sort of 
semi-ball dominant guard a la D'Lo, a la Curry Irving. I think based off of what we've seen so far, it's probably Spencer just because I would say he's a more willing and capable passer than Karras at this point. I think we've seen Karras improve his passing this past season, but it's still probably not up to you know a lead point guard role where we've kind of talked about on the Kyrie you know season preview and the season review that Kyrie is capable of playing off ball and having somebody hit him with a pass. You know, I think Karras still has to kind of prove some things we've already seen from Spencer. So at this point, it seems like you know Spencer can be a better complementary player. Yeah, I think that that's probably where I was sort of alluding to. But it's not to say that Karras can't. I just think that Spencer's a little bit smarter and more aware that he can. And I think we, I think at this point too, is Spencer kind of has a better idea of who he is as a player and like what his you know ceiling is. Where I think with Karras, he's a little bit unsure because it feels like every time every year we're seeing a different ceiling for him or a different peak that he can hit that maybe we didn't know the previous year. So I think Karras is kind of still coming into his own as a player and understanding who he is, or there's not really a cap where I think Spencer, you know, obviously has the ego of being an NBA player, but has a better understanding of like, what's the best version of Spencer Dooney or how am I going to make my career last or what's going to give me the best opportunity to win a championship. And I don't think Karras is thinking is at that level yet. You know, maybe some of it's like lack of playing basketball. We've talked about all the injuries in the past like that, or maybe it's just difference in personalities. Yeah, true. Um, I was able to find at least Karras Levert and Chris Gioza in a whopping 73 minutes of, of playing time. Uh, offensive rating 115, defensive rating 100, net rating of 15. Uh, that's pretty good. Uh, but again, 73 minutes. Uh, I'll keep on and the hunt. 20 minutes came against uh, the Boston Celtics. Yeah, true. And that's when Karis Levert just was like destroying one of the best teams uh, in the NBA. So, yeah, take what you will from uh, this. Oh, here we go. I actually found it, Nick. In four minutes. <laughs> and this stat means absolutely nothing because it's, uh, it's actually quite funny. Offensive rating, 37.5. <laughs> And the defensive rating of 175. So negative 137.5 net rating. Uh, clearly, they can't handle the floor together. That is crazy. I mean, they must it had to be like garbage time or something. But that is just Four like... minutes! That, that is just wild for even those numbers to be there. But obviously, like you said, it doesn't really matter. Uh, Chios is going to be a fun player review to do because we have a really yeah, small cool. sample size. But it feels like everything we've seen from him in that small sample size has been positive. Yeah, I think uh, we'll probably just get, our, get our, probably our greatest listenership in the history of the buzz on Chris Chioza. I think that there's a new hive, uh, and the, the Chioza hive, the Chai hive, I think is uh, full force. But uh, did you have any other things in terms of the ideal lineup around Spence that you wanted to touch on, Nick? No, I think I don't think we need to because I think it like we mentioned the ideal lineup, but we also mentioned how he can plug and play in so many different lineups, and I think that's what also kind of helps with his trade value, which we talked about with Matt and Nolan. Is the fact is that Spencer's kind of attractive to a contender because there's no fear of him not fitting in. Yeah, definitely. But talking about areas Spencer needs to improve next season if he's still on this squad, what are you thinking? Uh, I think it's all the things that we alluded to earlier. You know, the, the things that he has improved on, you know, scoring free throw attempts, defense, uh, a bit more balance and awareness in his game overall and just being more of a complete player, putting all those things together. You know, he needs to continue to do those, obviously. And uh, uh, essentially for me, hit that three ball. You know, uh, I think yeah. be able to hit that three ball at a respectable rate. And I think that he can take his game to, uh, I think it would make him, near a bona fide all-star um maybe not a bona fide all-star i think that maybe a bona fide all-star in the east because it's a a little bit more of a, a depth of talent uh, out there but if he's hitting you know because he's scoring if he's hitting the the three ball at a 35 to 38 percent rate his scoring goes up you know a couple of points per game and you know he's he's scoring at a 22 23 point per game level and there aren't many players in the nba that are doing that um obviously i think his scoring will likely and probably definitely go down next year, you know, next to Kyrie and next to KD. But if he's more efficient, you know, I think that he can still continue to average 17 to 21, 22 points per game because he'll still be playing quite a bit of minutes. I think he'll probably be third on the team in minutes or fourth or equal fourth, depending on, you know, Joe Harris and, and, and Karis Levert where they are uh, in regards to the team too. Yeah, I think shooting is the number one thing. I think anybody who's not named KD or Kyrie improve your shooting regardless is going to help even if you're already an elite shooter getting better at that skill with the amount of open looks you're going to have next season i think is super important and i think taking his defense to that next level 
you know, we saw it, and I'll keep pointing back to this because we've watched this performance together. You know, game one against Philly, we saw Spencer play some really, really good defense to the point where he was aggravating J.J. Redick off ball. And that's kind of what I want to see from him. I don't know if he can hit that all-star level next year, but I know he can be an all-star role player. Just somebody who's just ideal in his role, can fill in that six-man spot, maybe win six-man of the year like we've been preaching for the last two seasons where it feels like how does he not have one, but just doing the circumstances he hasn't gotten it. But I just feel like he's going to be such a, a weapon for the Nets if he's able to get that three-point percentage higher because of just like, all right, teams are going to try to push him off the three-point line. He's going to be able to drive to the rim and we already see how what that does for Joe Harris, and no disrespect to Joe, Spencer is an elite driver, and he has a great ability to finish and also get to the free throw line. So that would just take his skills to the next level. I know we always kind of talk about Harris being that third star. We're like Spencer. I don't know if he'd be the third star, but he could be that third like key piece that could really help push them. Well, if you're looking at other teams in terms of it's superstar joys are plenty across the NBA, Nick. And if Spencer Dillon is our third best player, you know I think that we're in a pretty damn good spot because if you look yeah. at the Lakers, who are the La- who's the Lakers' third best player? I think it would be similar to maybe the Bucks because <clears throat> during the, the, re- the yeah in the Clippers because their their third best players Lou Williams, Montrezl Harrell, you know Eric Bledsoe. I think that that puts the Nets in a similar position. You know Spencer Dinwiddie is in that caliber of sort of player. Um, you know he is a really really good point guard, can score, can play a little bit of defense. But I guess that probably leads us to to ranking the guys in their position. And I did go pretty deep on it. All right, Jack, hit me. What do you got? I know you dove so, deep for Karis, and now you're going to dive deep for Spence. Yes, I did. I did both. I I, I like my rankings. You know, I, <laughs> I, I do the the top fifty with, with Corey quite a bit. I, I do like the rankings, even though it is completely subjective and biased. So, I I have one category for him where he is, for me, the most valuable six man. You know, maybe some guys will be subjective and want to take Derek Rose, Lou Williams, or Dennis Schroeder. Uh, I think that in terms of if when he's playing that six man role, I would I think he can close. He has far less weaknesses than those three guys defensively. I think Schroeder can be okay. He's been really, really good in OKC, but I think part of that is because Chris Paul and SGA are so tremendous. But yeah, for me, Spencer Dewey is the the head of the sort of six-man range. Um, So that's one category that I had him in with those sort of four guys, similar sort of mold. But then when it came to point guards, these are the guys that I had him were better than him. So, and in no particular order. Russell Westbrook, Ja Morant, um, Trey Young, Damian Lillard, Kyrie Irving, Kimball Walker, Steph Curry, Darren Fox, Drew Holiday, uh, Kyle Larry, SGA, as I just alluded to, Chris Paul, uh, Jamal Murray, and Eric Bledsoe. So that's 15 or so guys. So I think he's in that sort of, I think he's probably next, if not around that sort of range. You know, I think Jamal Murray on on his peak is, is far better than Spencer. And Eric Bledsoe is... Uh, an insane defender, an absolutely freaking insane defender, probably maybe the best point guard defender in terms of at his position and and getting through screens in the NBA right now. So I would have him 15th, 16th, 17th in that sort of range, Nick. Yeah, I had him in the top 15, the top 17 range. I think you pretty much nailed it because when you get down to like the Jamal Murray, who like we've talked about before, super inconsistent, has those peaks, but it's like, would you rather have Spencer Dinwiddie, who's more consistent and kind of know what you're getting every night, especially if, you know, Spencer was playing alongside Jokic, who knows how efficient he could maybe be? Because I think Spencer could also, we didn't even talk about this in terms of improving. I think one thing Spencer needs to get a little bit better at is his off-ball movement at times. He's very stale and he doesn't necessarily make cuts. I know some of it's also playing point guard, looking to be the you know first one back on transition, uh, transition defense. But still, I think that'd be an area he can prove. And then even with Eric Bledsoe, defensively he's amazing driving he's very good but he does kind of put up goose eggs in the playoffs obviously Spencer doesn't have a huge sample size there yet so we can't really make an argument to push him ahead of that but I think the range you have him is exactly where I would have him and you could probably make an argument if Spencer was put onto another team and given a competent starting five that was you know above league average and was the starter for the entire year having that role he could probably move up a couple spots yeah I still think Bledsoe and Murray are better than him I just think that outside of the guys that I listed, I, I can't think of any names that sort of where he's just like, well, that guy is definitely better than Spencer Dinwiddie. Whereas I think Jamal Murray, despite his inconsistencies, is a guy that has proven in the playoffs, at least for, for some sustained period. Spencer has, I guess, a little bit. Again, not a big sample size. Uh, and Bledsoe, despite putting up, you know, bugger all in the playoffs, is uh, an amazing regular season player. And obviously, I still think that his defensive acumen He's an elite defensive player, 
and you know Spencer Dinwiddie is an elite driver. You know what skills do you want a little bit more? I think Eric Bledsoe is a probably a better three point shooter as well, um, and, and I trust him more with the three point shot than Spencer at least at currently. Maybe not mechanics wise and free throw shooting wise, whatever. Um, so I think that yeah. 15 to 17, uh, nice little guess of a number, Nick, because I literally listed that many names that uh, you're coming up with numbers and you know you don't even need to see the lists. Yeah, I mean, I just like literally that popped in my head too. I didn't even like make the list. I think we did it somewhat recently. So it was like somewhat fresh in my head that I already had the point guard numbers up. So, hey, we're on the same page. But let's get to yep. another question that we've kind of talked about, especially with Karis, the same thing. Is Spencer doing what he on the Nets at the end of next season? Uh, I'm going to go with yes because it's a lot easier to say. I'm more confident. Maybe with Spencer, despite I think, you know, we talk about contract status and, you know, having to re-sign Spencer. But, you know, next year is the year for, for the for the Nets. And maybe if not the year after, um, you know, the next, the, the two, three season window for the Brooklyn Nets in terms of their championship aspirations. It's, you know, the championship window doesn't uh, open and stay open for very, very long. So I think that Spencer fits you know, like I'll, I'll steal from Matt Brooks, you know, Spencer fits better on this team in terms of his malleability, like I sort of alluded to earlier. So I think it's easier for me to say that he will be on this team. Um, in terms of trades, and, and I've got a question for you, Nick, because it involves uh, your standard and uh, your allegiances to uh, an opposing player. But I'm more confident that Spencer Dimon will be on this team than Karis LeVert because I think if the Nets are going all in for a superstar... Karras has got to be in that package, whereas I think you might be able to keep Spencer. So that's probably my reasoning for my decision. Yeah, I think um, like if it's a superstar trade, if the Nets have a third star in this team and you know a third All Star, I think you know Spencer has a chance of still being here with Karras. Like you said, will probably be the key component to that trade. But if the Nets were to make small upgrades, I could see Spencer being included just because. I feel like that contract is a little worrisome just because he's not going to take the player option in 21-22. It's only $12 million. He's definitely going to be due for a payday. And I just like, if the Nets retain Joe Harris, like how high can we ask Joe Cy to play, pay in terms of luxury tax? Because like Spencer's going to get minimum $15 million. Like I would be immensely surprised if he got something less unless we're talking about some injury, which we hope not to happen, knock on wood. He's getting somewhere probably to like 17 to $19 million. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I was literally going to ask you, what do you think is the, the range of his contract? I think, you know, Fred Van Vliet's due for a payday um, very, very soon as well. And I think that, you know, uh, maybe Fred Van Vliet belongs in that list that I sort of spoke to. I, I think personally, you know, Fred Van Vliet's probably a better role player, but I think Spencer Dinwiddie has a, a better ability to lead a team. So uh, I think it's going to be fascinating to see because you generally look to what other guys get as a sort of prototype and go, okay, well, this is what... Karis LeVert got, and everyone's like, oh, wow, okay, if Karis LeVert gets that, then Jalen Brand's going to get nothing. And then he obviously got a, a near-max contract as well. So, yeah, I think Spencer Dimony is due for a payday. He deserves a payday. Um, and whether that's in the Brooklyn Nets or not, uh, I'm not 100% sure. I guess that name uh, that sort of is is hanging in the wings, Nick, and I'm going to ask you, you're going to pledge your allegiance to the Dinwiddie Hive or the Aaron Gordon Hive. Who would you rather have on the 2021 Brooklyn Nets team, Aaron Gordon or Spencer Dimwitty? Just because I know already who he is, I think I would prefer Spencer. I think Aaron Gordon feels more of a need, but I feel like Spencer Dinwiddie is a more valuable player. Like he just do, does things well, and if they can get him into the role, which we kind of talked about in terms of getting that three-point percentage up, that defense up, he could be a real weapon for them offensively. Obviously, Aaron Gordon would fit the defense, but it's just like tough to make that trade. You know what I mean? Like I think it's tough to trade Spencer Dinwiddie to Orlando Unless the Nets, like, let's say they package Dinwiddie and Torian Prince for Aaron Gordon, and then Orlando is sending back a pick or something. Because, yeah. like, I feel like Spencer Dinwiddie is probably better than Aaron Gordon in terms yeah. of, like, starting a team. Like, I would look at Spencer Dinwiddie before I look at Aaron Gordon because Aaron Gordon's more of that complimentary guy. And it's not like he's ascending and people are like, oh, we're trying to get him. Like, He's, his skill is kind of declining, and there's obviously not a fit there, where I think Spencer Dinwiddie continues to prove, hey, I can be this guy, I can maybe even be a little bit more than this guy if I'm put into the right scenario. So it's, like, really hard. It's like, do you weigh value or do you weigh needs? You know what I mean? Because Spencer, I think, has the more value, but Aaron Gordon feels more of a need because you already have Karis LeVert on the roster. So that's where it gets kind of tricky. Now, if, you know, for some reason... 
Karras is capable of being that six man and we already know he can do what Spencer can do, then I think it makes sense to maybe make the trade. But still, it's one that I'm not fully fully bought in on yet. Yeah, I think it's hard to buy in on, on it at all because you know, obviously the myriad of factors that you listed is probably the, the easiest thing to sort of allude to. It's just like, well, I don't know what Aaron Gordon would be like on this team. Would we get a better version of Aaron Gordon? You'd like to think so, or else you're not going to trade for him. Because if you get the same Aaron Gordon that he's been in Orlando, then you know the team is better in, in certain ways, but it's worse in a lot of ways because you lose the more talented player. Whenever, whenever trades happen, you essentially want to get the best player out of it, no matter you know what you're giving up. You know, in the the Lakers trade, they, they may have traded away every pick to to, to Timbuk too, but they got Anthony freaking Davis, and yeah, that at the end of the day is what matters when you in in the trade. You know, it, you can give away anything and add whatever pick, but if you're getting the better player, you generally are thought of winning the trade, so to speak. So, for me, I'd probably stick with Spencer as well. Um, it's about obviously it, where Karras is on the team and and what role Harry's he's health. Like. Kyrie's health it's uh, uh, uh so many factors that we can't necessarily think about because we don't really have a, a sample size to sort of look to and go okay well Aaron Gordon would fit with this Aaron Gordon would fit with that um so yeah I think Spencer because you go with what you know yeah and I think also I like I haven't really taken this much into consideration I should have I think Kyrie's injury is also something that's concerning like if Kyrie misses time or he's missing a couple games you feel confident plugging Spencer in as your starting point guard. You even feel confident to the extent of, you know, Kevin, if uh, KD comes back and he's still a top seven, top 10 player, that you can win a playoff game with Spencer Dewey being your starting point guard. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm, I probably wouldn't argue with that either. So I, it'll be really interesting. And I think that's where Sean Marks' job it gets really difficult for the season now that we've done Karis, we've done Spencer. It really doesn't make a ton of sense to move these guys unless you're getting that next level of talent. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, we'll be diving into some other sort of ways that we can make the Nets team better on some news buzzes. And, you know, they'll be dropping soon as well. Plenty of stuff to sort of chat about. But, you know, Spencer, great season from him. Uh, some improvements that are needed, obviously. But, uh, no player is perfect. Uh, not even Joe. Uh, not Joe Harris is perfect. Sorry. <laughs> well, that wraps it up on that note. Big thanks as always for everybody listening. Jack, always a pleasure talking Nets with you. And you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, otgbasketball.com, netsrepublic.com, and Blue Wire Pods. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.